I don't think I have to remind you, but I will anyway, teaching through 1 Corinthians with the theme of everyday discipleship. And again, it's always good for me to be reminded, for you to be reminded, that this church was a local church in the midst of the Roman Empire. And just like any church at any time in any place, there were ways in which God's spirit was being manifested, the power of the gospel, the life of the kingdom of the heavens. And there were ways that there were just totally glaring inconsistencies with the way of Jesus and the way of God's kingdom. Remember, it had been reported to Paul that the church was having all sorts of issues and divisions. They were pitting one another against one another. There were sexual issues and spiritual issues and social issues. And so Paul writes to them, and it feels like this laundry list, but really it is just a symptom of a greater issue, and that is that the Corinthians had failed to realize the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what? We are not immune to that either. None of us are, and I'm actually very excited to bring this word to you today because this passage is really all about how we recalibrate our lives according to that very same gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love this quote from Leslie Newbegin. It's helped me really frame our studies through 1 Corinthians. But he says this, the choice of the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? I said to you guys last week that Paul, starting in verse two of chapter 11, turns his attention to the worship gathering of the Corinthian church. And he's going to address varied issues in their gatherings all the way through chapter 14. He begins by talking about women and their dress and their appearance in the worshiping gathering. And then what we'll look at today, he talks about the use and abuse of the Lord's Supper. And then in chapters 12 through 14, he will talk about the use and abuse of the gifts. But I think a really good question to ask ourselves is, what, you know, what is the positive thing that Paul is trying to drive home? Or what is Paul's standard or North Star that he gives to this church in their gatherings? And though it's not very clear in the first section, I think when we take this entire section, chapters 11 through 14, in its totality, we see what Paul has in mind is what's called the proleptic vision. We talked about this a little bit last week. But proleptic is a grammatical term in which a future event is so certain to come, so sure that it is spoken of in the present tense. Remember, the church is called to be, as Eugene Peterson says, a colony of heaven in the country of death. The church is to live out now what we will be. We're to live the kingdom of the heavens now, just as Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. That would be the proleptic vision. I love what Lee Camp says in his book, Scandalous Witness. He says, the coming kingdom entails a shared abundance and unencumbered generosity. Thus, we practice generosity and hospitality even now in the present. 
The coming kingdom entails the unlearning of war, thus we learn the counsels of peace now. The coming kingdom entails the righting of all wrongs by truth-telling and suffering love. Thus, we tell the truth, practice suffering love, and right wrongs now. It's that same vision that Peter cast to the church in his first epistle where he tells them to grab onto, hold tightly to the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they are to live out presently the future reality and hope of the resurrection life in Jesus or the new creation. And so this is really what Paul has in mind in this section. He wants us to live out the life of the kingdom now. And I think that this is clearly seen that 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of the, the apex of this section where Paul talks to us about the supremacy of love. And I love that N.T. Wright tells us this. He says, you know, for the Christian, love is not just a duty, but love is our destiny. We're called to be imitators of the God who is love because one day we will be made like, completely, holy like the God who is love. And so we are called to live that out now. So let's talk about what was going on in the church in Corinth, in their gathering around the Lord's Supper. And then I wanna cast a, a positive vision of what I believe the Lord is calling us to in our observance of the Lord's Supper. So first of all, Paul points out that this really, this gathering is the antithesis of the Lord's Supper. And he begins with this indictment. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Brian getting up on Sunday morning, looking out, I've noticed something, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Our meetings, our gatherings together are doing more harm than they are doing good. This is quite the indictment. And how tragic to think that the gathering together of God's redeemed people could actually do more harm than do good. How, I mean, how does that even come about? I think one way, and I'm not gonna belabor this, but I think one way is that we forget what we are doing and we forget who we are. And so we're gonna talk about this morning. How do we remember who we are? How do we continually remember what our gatherings are about? How do we make sure that our gatherings don't just become social events where we just see our friends, we kind of exchange niceties and pleasantries, and then we just go about our merry way but we are never changed, we are never transformed, built up, exhorted, matured through our gatherings together. This is a danger for every Christian community. So why are these gatherings here in Corinth doing more harm than good? Well, Paul says, he brings up the issue of divisions in the church once again, but these do not seem to be what he addressed earlier in the letter, but are specifically social economic divisions that had arisen in the church community. 
And these specifically center around the gathering together to observe the Lord's Supper. So because of this, Paul makes this wild statement. This is my paraphrase. It is, in fact, not the Lord's Supper that you are observing. Again, what an indictment, right? To look around and the bread is being passed, the cup is being passed, and Paul's like, no, this is not. This is not the Lord's Supper. I don't know what you think you're doing here. I don't know what you think you're actually practicing or how you're actually honoring the Lord, but this is not the Lord's Supper. You know, this takes me back to the prophets, When God spoke to the children of Israel and he says, I hate your sacrifices. These these aromas, these instances, they are a stench in my nostrils. I don't care for any of this. I want it all torn down and taken away. But instead, let there be a flood of justice. Let mercy roll down. See, God in the Old Testament is speaking through the prophets the same thing that Paul is saying here. This is not sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord. This is not the Lord's Supper that they are observing. What you are doing is so out of line with and is the antithesis of the way of Jesus and what this meal is all about. That's what Paul is saying. So what were they doing? It seems that the church community was getting together for some sort of private supper club in their weekly church gatherings in the name of the Lord's Supper. The Net Bible says everyone proceeds with his own or her own supper. So just imagine with me a kind of BYOS, bring your own supper to the gathering event. That's kind of what it sounds like is happening here. There were these little supper clubs that had turned into socioeconomic divisions and distinctions. The result was some were having these elaborate feasts with their social group, their in-crowd, their friends, while others had nothing, brought nothing, so they were hungry. Others were getting drunk, possibly because that's all that was left was the alcohol. It was a total humiliation of the poor of the church community. And so Paul says that by doing this, you are despising the church of God through humiliating those who have nothing. That is the poor. So you see the Corinthian church, through their practice and observance, were making this meal say the exact opposite of what Jesus was saying and doing in the Lord's Supper. Paul from here walks them through the tradition that he had passed down to the church in Corinth, taking them back to the night of the Last Supper and to Jesus' call to remembrance. And from here, he exhorts the church not to eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. Now, we'll unpack Paul's teaching and the direction, the positive direction that he gives to the church in a moment. But I want to talk for a second about what does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner. And I believe in its most simplified form, an unworthy manner would be a lifestyle or practice that is out of sync with the self-giving, sacrificial way of Jesus and his kingdom. I'll say that again. 
An unworthy manner would be a lifestyle or practice that is out of sync with the self-giving, sacrificial way of Jesus and his kingdom. And so Paul exhorts them, examine yourselves. Why? Well, because those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, most likely this is a reference not just to Jesus himself, but also to the church. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body. It's a reference to Jesus and his people whom he is directly connected with. He says, those who do not discern the body eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that is why many among you are sick and a number have died. What the heck is going on here? Anybody read like those passages in the Bible and you're just like, wow, like record stops, like what just happened? Like there's that passage of Judah and Tamar and you're like, how is this in the Bible? Right, it's just so jacked up. So what is going on here? Some interpret this to mean, right, well, okay, let me back up for a second. What is going on here? Well, clearly, there is some sort of plague or judgment happening in the church in Corinth because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Why? What exactly is the deal? What's the problem? Well, Paul tells them to examine themselves. So some have interpreted this to mean unless in your observance of the Lord's Supper, you confess all your sin before partaking, you are in danger of the judgment of God, drinking or eating in an unworthy manner. Therefore, if you cannot take it in a worthy manner without making everything right first, don't take it. And if you're not a Christian, definitely don't take it. Like, we don't want to call the morgue, right? Or the paramedics or whatever. It's not what we're gathered for. And so through this interpretation, right, you, maybe you've been in a church practice before and right before the communion meal is passed out or you're invited to come forward, the pastor says, oh, and just by the way, if you're not a Christian here or if you have not confessed your sin, we highly recommend that you do not partake of the bread and the cup. And usually they don't say, because we don't want any deaths in the room or anything like that. But like, there's just this like, what, what, why? What's going on here? And though this interpretation is popular, I don't believe it matches the context of what Paul is saying. Remember, the issue in Corinth is a socioeconomic issue of righteousness and justice. Remember, he says, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? That's what's going on here. So it seems rather what's happening is a judgment from God on the way the Corinthians are treating the poor among them. A judgment that results in sickness and in death. Wow, well, okay, that's still very extreme. And Char, that smells of the God of wrath and judgment that does not square well with my understanding of Jesus who is full of grace and truth. Yeah, this is, this is a difficult passage. Let me say that this picture here is actually consistent with what we find throughout the whole biblical narrative. 
God, Yahweh, takes the abuse, injustices, and unrighteous acts against the weak, the poor, the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner deadly serious. In almost all of the judgments pronounced in Scripture, thinking specifically the prophets, the concern is how people live and lived in relation to these groups of people. Are they doing right? Are they doing righteousness is always the question to those concerned. Or are they committing injustice and unrighteousness to the poor? This was a major issue in the days of Jeremiah. And a reason why the Babylonian captivity happened. One of the reasons why. So it's an understatement that the poor and marginalized hold a precious place in the heart of God. This can be seen all throughout the law, the prophets, and the life and ministry of Jesus. Finally, listen to the judgment pronounced by James upon those who do injustice to the poor among them. Just listen to this. Listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The issue in Corinth was an abuse and a neglect of the poor among them. And this is why the judgment of God was coming upon them. Therefore, Paul says, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. There should be none of these distinctions among of you. This should be a feast of abundance, of hospitality, a table of oneness, of justiceness, righteousness, and honor. It should be a table that practices the way of Jesus. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to stand in judgment against the failures of certain characters or communities in the biblical narrative. But I think a kind of criticism like this shows a lack of humility and self-awareness because we're all in danger of theological drift. We're all in danger of spiritual amnesia if we do not keep the gospel and Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection and the hope of the new creation at the center of our community and our gatherings. We must. And I believe one of the main ways that Jesus has offers to do this for his church is through this meal that we are observing this morning. Through this meal, that just sounds so strange. Well, let's just talk a little bit about this meal and what it 
was and what it is to be for the church. Now, of course, in ancient Near East, and especially in the scripture, a meal was never just a meal, a time to simply ingest food and quench thirst. Now, I'm not saying that people didn't just snack or eat as they went about, but if you had a meal, a meal carried deep significance. It was about kinship, friendship, and oneness. It was about hospitality. I mean, this is why Paul is saying you cannot share in the table of the Lord and of demons because there is something deeper afoot here. It was about hospitality. It celebrated covenant and promise. It's significant in scripture that the first meal ever mentioned being prepared and eaten is a meal between Abraham and Yahweh. Genesis 18 verses three through eight. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery says, in the Near East culture, meals themselves, the food served, the manner in which it was done and by whom carried socially significant coded communication. The more formal the meal, the more loaded with messages. The messages had to do with honor, social rank in the family and community, belonging, purity, and holiness. Among God's chosen people, Israel, meals became ways of experiencing and enjoying God's presence and provision. See, when the early church gathered together for worship, it looked and probably felt very different from our worship gatherings today, and especially the way that we observe the Lord's Supper. Theirs was a true meal in a home, And in that meal, the bread and wine would be present. And at some point in time, attention would be drawn to these elements and their deep significance. They represent Jesus's body that was broken and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin for this community, this collective. There was a family idea present, a oneness present. a communal sense and communal, communal identity about this observance. The Lord's Supper was really a ceremonial meal of remembrance, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. Now, of course, our practice of observing the Lord's Supper is much different in outward context, right? We're not in someone's house. There's no meal being served, and some of you might still even be curious We're confused as to why we eat a little bit of cracker or cardboard wafer and have the smallest glass of juice in the world as part of our morning ritual of worship. I've got some funny stories about how I was holding on to communion years ago and I was just like, the cup is so small, my hand is so big. The cup is so small, my hand is so big. And like, I just dropped it and just spilled it all over me and just, I missed communion. What is this all about? Well, let's talk about this meal, and I hope by God's grace we will capture the powerful significance of this practice and be transformed by it. Now, I believe the Lord's Supper points us backward and inward, forward and outward. So backward and inward. In order to correct the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper, Paul reminds them of the very night it all happened. Verses 23 through 25, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Paul first wants to take the church back to that very night to remind them what this meal is all about. It's about God's incredible grace, his life for our lives, his body broken for us, his blood shed for the inauguration of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper takes us back to the cross and helps us remain Christ-centered and cross-centered. Every week we gather, ideally, and are reminded, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, and be grateful. This is my blood shed for you and for all human beings for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Every week we're called to the table of the Lord to remember him, to remember what he has done for us. But the question is, what does it mean to remember? Does it simply mean that we shouldn't let thoughts slip out of our minds? Hey, remember. Hey, just remember me, Jesus. Does it mean we reminisce on the sufferings of Jesus so we feel really thankful or really awful? For many Christians, to remember is an ambiguous mental activity. But in the Bible, a call to remember, especially when tied to a covenant sign or ceremony, is a vibrant, powerful, and participatory concept where we recalibrate our lives according to what is being remembered. We recalibrate our lives according to what is being remembered. We remember what Jesus did for us. We remember our sin, our shame, our brokenness, our ill alienation from God for his righteousness, for his purity, for his wholeness, for his sonship. He gave himself for us, for you, and you, and you, and you, and for me. Paul says, remember and calibrate your life accordingly. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he says this, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Or also in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This incredible exchange through the grace of God, remember and recalibrate I think about the words that Jesus said in John's gospel. You know, John's gospel has no breaking of the bread and passing of the cup, but it does have John 6, 56, and that whole section there where Jesus is speaking to the Jews and saying, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. 
And he says there, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, the symbols of the Lord's Supper, abides in me, lives in me, and I live in them. See, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus offers us a kind of permanence, a permanent ongoing association and identity with him. He offers us to make our home with him and he with us. So the Lord's Supper then becomes this opportunity or invitation to trust and believe in in this physical way by weekly reorienting our lives around Jesus, making him the center of our universe, making him our home and our soul identity. This is how we avoid theological drift. This is how we avoid spiritual amnesia. This is how we avoid abusing the Lord's Supper or just observing it flippantly. The act of the Lord's Supper doesn't just point us backward to that night, but it also points inward to our hearts, centering our lives around the person of Jesus Christ and finding our soul identity in what he has done for us. We're blood-bought We belong to Jesus. We are his purchased people. Frederick Bruner, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he asked this question, what is the Lord's Supper? And this is how he answers it. He says, it is the word becoming flesh again and again. It is the most earthy way that the heavenly Lord wants to be with his people. The sacraments are not a second way of salvation. They are simply Jesus' one way of salvation, scaled down, physicalized, individualized, simplified, and made concrete. From hearts to hands, from soul to body, from group to individual, Jesus knew that we need not only spiritual things but also physical things in order to grasp him more easily, to come to him. More specifically, he is giving himself to us in this fresh new way in order to humanize and personalize his coming to us and to particularize our coming to him. The Lord's Supper is a repeated altar call to ongoing conversion, to fresh recommitments and entrustments of oneself to the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Wow. I mean, what a beautiful picture. Every week we gather. I mean, we don't have the physical table laid out. We might one day, we'll see. But just picture with me, the Lord sitting at the table and he is inviting anyone who will hear, come sit at my table, feast with me, feast on my life, take, eat, And be thankful this is my body that is broken for you. Take, drink, be reminded that you have been washed, purchased by my blood. Be a guest at my table. Be one with me. Be at home at my table. What an incredible invitation. I think about just our unworthiness. You know the story of Mephibosheth? I can't even say it. Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan. He's paralyzed. 
But David had made a covenant with Jonathan that he would do good to Jonathan's family, that he would take care of Jonathan's family, and Jonathan would take care of David's family no matter what happened. So to make a long story short, David finds out that Jonathan has one sole heir left. And so what he does is he brings this crippled beggar man to his table, and he seats him at the table of the king all of his days. He makes him a part of the family. The table covers his paralyzed legs. They are not seen. He's brought in. He's honored. He's made one with David's family. This is a picture of the invitation that our king offers to us. We are shamed and broken, paralyzed by sin, and yet we are invited to the table of the Lord. And as we sit at the table of the Lord, all of our sin, all of our brokenness is covered. It's healed. Communion or the Lord's Supper should be observed, I believe, this is my conviction, you don't have to share it. I believe it should be observed weekly because it is one of the only participatory acts we do in our gatherings besides corporate singing and praise. It is a physical act to align our bodies with our hearts and our heads with our Savior. It is a whole person act aligning and dedicating ourselves to the way of Jesus. So the supper looks backward, it looks inward, but it also points forward. See, the Lord's Supper points us forward to the kingdom of God. You remember Jesus said to his disciples on that night that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it anew in the kingdom. Now, Paul follows that same idea here, and he says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We anticipate the kingdom, the coming of the king. Now you see from these two passages that the Lord's Supper is to be a picture or a foretaste of the kingdom. While it recalls and summarizes Christ's death, his burial and resurrection, the feast also looks ahead to the feast in the kingdom or the marriage supper of the Lamb. James K. Smith, quoting Peter Lightheart, says, the Eucharist or Lord's Supper should be understood as a sign of the renewed creation the Eucharist is our model of the eschatological order, a microcosm of the way things ought to be. Now this goes back to what we said in the introduction, the church being called to the proleptic vision. But what, is, what does that look like specifically? To take the bread and the cup in anticipation of the kingdom of God as a foretaste, as a foreshadow. Well, think about this. The bread and wine are freely distributed to all who are in communion. This itself anticipates the abundance of the kingdom of God. The prophet foretold, come everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This is a picture of what the kingdom of God will be like. 
So the Lord's Supper is a small picture and foretaste of the justice and righteousness that characterizes the coming of the kingdom of God, where none will grow hungry because of poverty or alienated labor. No one will hoard a surplus because of selfishness or self-indulgence, leaving others lacking. As in the Lord's Supper, bread and wine are freely and equally distributed. The Lord's Supper gives practice to us for such kingdom economics. When we do it, we enact a foretaste of the way things ought to be, the way things will be. I'll talk about this in just one moment, my last point, and then we'll close. But think about recalibrating our lives is what this meal is about, but it's also then about moving forward into this kingdom vision. And so as we're recalibrating our lives, then it would beg to reason that we are thinking about the poor and the needy among us. We're thinking, how can I live the life of Jesus and help others? How can I sacrifice for those around me? It breaks me out of my social circle my who's who, who I know, who I'm comfortable with and familiar with, and reminds me that that is not what church is about. That's not what God's people are about. This is a family of service. This is a family of sacrifice. This is a family of one another's, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Lord's Supper points us to that kingdom vision of abundance and generosity and compels us, live this out now. Lastly, it points outward to be reconciled to one another. So it doesn't just give us the proleptic vision, but exhorts us, live the proleptic vision. The Lord's Supper is a feast of forgiveness and reconciliation, not just of us with God, but for us to one another. It is a table in the presence of would-be enemies. But also a table where God sits with those who were once enemies, but now have been reconciled, made one in him. Do we think about that when we take the bread and the cup? Who gets to sit at the table of the Lord? Do you know that even among Jesus's disciples, there was a, let's just call him a conservative. There was also a radical, progressive, Simon the Zealot, there was such a wide range of personalities and I would even say political convictions even at the table of Jesus, that last meal. Judas is probably the only disciple that was formally educated. And then you have a tax collector. You have Simon the Zealot. Then you have Peter and John and James and Andrew, the fishermen, the lower class from Galilee, and yet they are all at the table of the Lord. 
invited to be one in him. It is a table of would-be enemies who have been reconciled, made one in Messiah Jesus. The supper is a gracious communion with a forgiving God, but it's also a supper that we eat with one another, and this will require forgiving and being forgiven. Just as Jesus admonishes us to be reconciled to our brother before leaving our gifts at the altar, or our sister, might I add, so too Paul admonishes the Corinthians to examine themselves before partaking of the Lord's Supper. And from the earliest practices of the church, the discipline of reconciliation has been connected to the Lord's Supper. For how can we, who have been freely forgiven of all sin, great and small, withhold forgiveness from one another? How can we say, oh, Jesus, I remember you, and yet be like the unforgiving servant who will not forgive the small debt of sin? How can we do that? See, it's anything any sort of lifestyle that is out of, out of line with the self-giving, sacrificial way of Jesus. John the Apostle reminds us, we love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, yet hate their brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You are deceived. This is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. James K. Smith again says, in a broken world, the church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community that gathers irrespective of preferences, tastes, class, or ethnicity in order to pursue the common good. And the way we begin to learn that is at the Lord's table. The habit of examination and reconciliation are meant to be like training wheels meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. We're practicing for what we will be. It's a discipline, it's a habit that we practice, that we observe so that we might truly live it out. We see how this outward approach that I'm talking about here also anticipates the kingdom of God where God's shalom, his peace, will cover the earth, where nations will no longer learn war and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The church is to anticipate the peace of the kingdom now in our community relations. Now, of course, it's not that we will ever perfect this in our lifetime. Forgiveness and reconciliation are lifelong projects. But if Christ, whom we want to love supremely, offers his body and blood equally to us, how can we not want to want to love 
forgive and be reconciled to one another. I do believe there are sins so great that we have to say, Lord, I want to forgive, help my unforgiveness. I give both my forgiveness, my willingness to forgive and my unwillingness to you. And I give it to you again and again and again. As often as it comes up, I lay it on the altar. As often as it comes up, I nail it to the cross of Jesus, saying this will not define me. This will not keep me from the forgiveness and wholeness that Jesus offers me. I will not let the bitterness of sin done to me define me. The Lord's Supper helps us, it reminds us, it recalibrates us to do exactly that. It reminds us of where we've come from, forgiven, healed, supremely loved, and where we are ultimately heading, wholeness, abundance, and the shalom of God. That's what this meal is meant to do. And I pray that more and more we will become a church that centers our community around Jesus' sacrificial death for us. You know, I, I often hear people say, oh, I love my church because of the community that's there. But I don't often hear people talk about, I love my church because of the spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation that is there. We have conveniently used denominations and local churches to support our lack of forgiveness and reconciliation. Rather than allowing the table of the Lord to speak in the powerful way that Jesus wants to speak to us, we leave. We don't have the hard conversations. We don't walk with people through the difficulty. We just go somewhere else. How amazing would it be if we lived out this vision so that the world around us, as I talked about this last week, that is taken hold of cancel culture, learns that there is a better way. There's a greater way in a way that will not pull away from our human wholeness, but will only increase it as we apply the broken body and shed blood of Jesus to real sin and brokenness. That we actually live out the gospel and see how God's grace is greater than all of our sin. As Paul says, for where sin abounds, grace abounds much, much more. What if? I pray that we will become a church with this kind of reputation. A church where the forgiveness and reconciliation of the Lord Jesus is lived. Let's pray together.
Holy Spirit, come. Breathe on us. Move in our hearts. Blow out the fallen leaves, the dust, everything that is collective, that is buried, the deeper and real issues of our own brokenness and sin. As David said in Psalm 139, search our hearts, Lord. See if there is any wickedness, unrighteousness, injustice, bitterness in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, we are not here to play church. We are not here to just socialize with our friends. We are here to practice the way of Jesus, to train for godliness and righteousness. And so help us to take up these elements this morning and to live them out. Lord, as they go down into us, Lord, would they be like seeds that are planted in rich soil and would they bring forth new life, the life of new creation, the life of forgiveness and reconciliation, of healing and of wholeness, the life of God. So we ask, Lord, as we sing together, as we worship together, Holy Spirit, that you would move now, that you would direct us to one another, that you would direct us to the poor and the needing among us, that you would direct us to the brother that we have sinned against, that you would direct us to the sister that we have held bitterness against, and Lord, that we would be a reconciled people. Holy Spirit, come.